Hello, dear friends. Time now for Alley Audio Vision, a sonic time warp and tale of architecture, power, money, and passion. Clark Yarrington of Frame Residential Design in Anchorage, Alaska at the helm. Ralph Alley spent 30 years designing in Alaska beginning in 1959. In this episode, we talk about house design parameters and approach. Ralph sketches what it was like in early 60s Anchorage as the city grew uncontrollably and discusses the negative lingering consequences. Ralph gains perspective and independence as his career flowers, overcoming a problem gaining architectural registration. Sit back and enjoy. No examination to follow. Ralph, good morning. What's going on down there? Good morning there. Well, it's been in the 90s, and that is kind of interesting. I've not really liked hot weather, but it started. Here, too. I I think it's going to be uh, uh, as up to 71 today. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. It's, it's Better rough. Better get the air conditioning on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which yes. is which is a ceiling fan in this house, but uh, you know, a ceiling fan and open the windows. I prefer ceiling fans over air conditioning. I seem to get enclosed into controlled air conditioning, and I just end up sick in it. And I try not to use it. Like you're coming down with the virus or tuberculosis or something like that. Well, in the days when I was really involved with architecture, people were so proud of hermetically sealed buildings and it seems strange the 180 degree turn that that's taken where people are trying everything they can to have natural ventilation no matter how high up the building goes. Kuntz Pfeffer's office moved to uh, the old bank building at 5th and G Street in uh, the 90s. And I remember um, hearing talk about the um, mechanical engineers that were designing the new system um, said, well, it'll work better if um, you take the window cranks off and don't allow the windows to open anymore. They would open only Ooh. about six inches, you know. <laughs> Some of us went over there and um, took a couple of the cranks uh, ourselves so we would have them. <laughs> And we definitely <laughs> yes. did uh, open the windows. The way for yeah. you. There was an architect, uh, a very close friend of mine named Don Coolidge, and he loved the windows open no matter where he was. And I had the privilege of being with him several times uh, doing buildings uh, in my career. And no matter what building we were in, the windows were open no matter what uh, the system was. <laughs> and he, he couldn't take it. He could not take that uh, conditioning. Uh. Well, just besides the, the comfort aspect of it, there's um, the idea that uh, if the windows are open a little bit, you sort of hear what's going on and it's like you're part of your setting instead of um, turning your back to it. I've never thought of it from that standpoint, but I kind of like being integrated into where I am rather. And when I get into an elevator, I hate that feeling. Not quite sure where I am and what is happening outside there, and I'm hope, hoping to gush that I get out of there soon. But one time I was in Las Vegas and was staying at the Luxor, which is that pyramid. Yeah, my dad told me about that place. Well, the most amazing thing, we were in the elevator going up to the room, and the thing goes, tilts backwards and sideways. And everybody was falling on everybody else. It It is an amazing feeling, and that really bugged me. Hated that room, hated the hotel. <laughs> if I wanted to look out the windows, I had to get on my hands and knees practically to get up to the window because it was sloping over my head. 
My dad loved Vegas. He couldn't open the windows. He told me all about it, and he wanted me to come down there with him. And the more he talked about it, I'm like, you know, I I don't think so. (laughs) I'll find something else to do. It's not my bag. The large hotels there, they are mega structures. Uh, And maybe less than what was first conceived as mega structures, but they are huge. And you get in there... And I'll be in one of those hermetically sealed rooms, like a hundred stories up there, way back in the corner. And in the night, I'll start thinking, I can't get fresh air. I can't get fresh air. (laughs) And there has been once or twice I've had to get up, put on my clothes, go down these long corridors, find an elevator, wait for it, have them take me to a lobby. And it takes miles across the lobby to get outside. And I kind of line up the places I stay with windows that I can open and how fast I can get out of them. <laughs> yeah, there and there's probably people that like rate hotels on those parameters, you know, so the information's probably not hard to come by in this age. Yes. Well, the last time we talked, I was kind of exploring uh, since I had a car and was heading into Anchorage down L Street past Seal Street Apartments and the McKinley Building, which were the two high-rise buildings in those days in Anchorage. And I think that when you speak with people who go there, and oftentimes people in conversation who have been to Anchorage, they can't believe that Anchorage was like that, how little, and just two buildings that stood out. Anchorage really was very mixed as far as... uh, uh, what kind of construction, because you'd have the high-rise, and right next to it, you'd have these wooden buildings, little houses, and just sitting all around it. And it's unlike any other development I'd ever seen. If they think that's strange, then tell them about Whittier, which is a very small place and oh, yes. has one 14-story <laughs> building, and practically everybody in the town lives in it. That uh, That is... I, I was only there... I think twice in my life, and once was when I went to Valdez on that first trip. I was quite shocked by that, but I saw it. Yeah. I, I remember when they built the tunnel um, there, well, there was a tunnel for many years that was just yeah. for trains, and then they uh, opened it up for cars in the 90s sometime, late 90s, I think. A friend of mine wa- expressed That was the second time I went there. Go ahead. A friend of mine expressed some curiosity about going and seeing it. And I'm like, yeah, we could go down there. That'd be, you know, an interesting diversion. And um, so we um, drove down and drove through the tunnel, and it was strange and claustrophobic. And we got to the town and looked around a little bit. And he said, oh, I don't like this. Let's get out of here. (laughs) So we drove back into the tunnel and back to Anchorage. Well, once I have an experience like that, I have a hard time going back through the experience that got me traumatized in the first place. I've had to do it, but uh, I can remember working in Seattle. I worked on the 17th floor in a high-rise at Bassetti's, and we got stuck one day in an elevator at a lunch hour between the 12th and 13th floor. That was quite a trial for me. Uh, I like freedom, but we finally had to force the doors open and crawl out of the bottom of the car and to the 12th floor over that great cavity <laughs> looking down 12 floors. It's one thing that gives me a lot of respect for 
the shortest time I'm in an elevator or a tunnel is better for me. Yeah, all that uh, taking the stairs stuff turns out to uh, be better for you uh, than you thought. And I always take the stairs. Uh, my wife takes the elevator. I run up. <laughs> I run down still. Mm-hmm. And I lived on the 13th floor in the L Street. And I took the elevator. Uh, that was after I got stuck in the elevator in Seattle. And uh, I don't know how I did that, but uh, I did it. Back at that office, uh, Kuntz Pfeffer's um, 90s uh, office at 5th and G, bigwigs, the owners of the firm, had parking spaces in the building. Everybody else had to park like a couple blocks away. I discovered that I could bike ride to work, and I could go down there where the executives park and uh, lock my bike up to a gas pipe and then um, take the stairs up to the 8th floor. So I did that every day. I'd try to like, um, you know, walk fast on the stairs or run the stairs. I, I, I could almost run the stairs after a little bit of practice. I was younger then. Well, I have stairs in our house. Contemporaries of mine who have houses, has a house similar to mine, had to get rid of the two-story house because they just couldn't climb stairs. And I climb stairs a lot of times a day. And I am pretty hardy. Uh, in comparison to them. Yeah, you see people talking about stairs. I mean, I, I, I guess like there's there's people with bad hips and stuff like that, and it's a legitimate grievance, but um, sometimes yes, you're a little skeptical, you know? It's like you're talking about um, not wanting to walk upstairs like you're 90 years old, but you're 50. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I've always somewhat liked stairs, uh, not only just because it gets me up and down, but I like... The change, the visual elevation change that you get as you go up and down. The house we have now is such that when you're going from one floor to another, it is a real treat because there's just things to see. And when I designed our house down in Sunset Hills, we had this staircase that you could go down. It was curved, but these windows in the living room, which were very high, they, uh, looked out over the inlet in the Kenai Peninsula, that you could see the flats and the peninsula and everything out there as you went up and down the stairs. And I love that. And I think stairs add drama to, uh, to the experience of living in a place if you see it that way, rather than this horrible thing you have to endure just to your bedroom or something. I agree with that, and I get a kick out of them too because they're something that uh, you can often um, introduce an element like that to a client and they're not really expecting it. And the stairs seem to be something that's particularly vexing to people who don't work with them all the time. You know, they can't really envision how, how they even work. <laughs> the head clearances you need and, you know, the, the different options you have for them and stuff. It's designing homes in Anchorage. I did the upside down house and the main floor was upstairs and the uh, ancillary floors is for uses for homes were down on the ground floor. And I thought raising the floor, the main floor, one story got you out of looking into automobiles to the street and into snow and uh, all the other things that happen in Anchorage. And uh, some of the main houses that I did, did have second floor living space, main living spaces. And I always kind of call them the upside down houses, but uh, there's a number that I did like that that were fairly good homes, I think. 
And you've been in some. That uh, um, form with the living area up in the bedrooms down was got pretty popular for a while in the, it seems like the mid-80s to the, for about 10 years or so after that. I lived in a house like that for a year or so, and I kind of liked it. It was neat, you know? Yes. The ceilings were higher up there because they could be because they're under the roof, and so it's easier to uh, do uh, tricks like that. And also, like, um, you would be up there in the, in the morning getting ready, kind of like eating breakfast, l- looking out at the view and stuff like that. And then at some point where it was almost time to go, you'd kind of close off the whole floor, turn off the lights and stuff, and then uh, go downstairs and, and uh, get ready to go. So it was there. There was something logical about it, you know. It, it lived uh, nicely. I felt the gable end was a key to uh, Alaska design, and there are many different ways you can do that. But it keeps the drainage away from main parts of access into a building, and that is the garages and entranceways. And the roofs, by doing that, usually are vaulted, and I really experimented a lot with that. Uh, but the change of volume in those uh, floors, in the upper floor, I thought gave a lot of uh, livability and probably endurance during times when you're shut in because you can experience so many different spaces within your own home just walking around. I think this gets back to the staircase thing, but having that mobility and change of elevation and the change of heights and volumes in a space within your living quarters, I think, is a main thing to uh, combat uh, the terrible feelings you get having to be shut in. And maybe a lot of people are feeling that now with this virus being shut in their homes uh, and are living in just eight-foot ceilings or something like that, uh, probably get make makes people want to go nuts. And uh, I went to a gathering a week ago last, uh, no, it was last Sunday. It's the first time six people I'd been in a dinner eating with other people and everyone just, everyone else felt the same way. It was the most wonderful time we all had because we had been with real people in our space and running around. And uh, I think this whole thing with uh, shutting people in and restricting people's uh, uh, activity is really a bad, bad mental uh, trial. Maybe people will think more about the spaces that they're designing rather than today it seems so much around the green idea of designing uh, with zero tolerances and but it seems the livability is kind of going to the wayside and Livability was one thing I loved about uh, architecture, that we were designing spaces around humanity, and now we're designing around materials and consumption of fuels. And that's a good thing, but there's got to be a balance. My dissertation there. People like you probably uh, think about um, volume and um, the other um, aspects that you were talking about in sort of a different and much more creative way. Have you ever seen this um, website about McMansions called McMansion Hell? 
usually shows a McMansion like the front view or something like that, and then it's annotated and it points at all these features and how like ridiculous and pointless they are. But even if it's not a McMansion, just a builder house these days, they often put the volume in a place where it really doesn't do you very much good. Right inside the front door, there's a two and a half story height space that a stairway kind of spills down into, but often it doesn't really um, look at anything. It's not really so con concerned with its uh, site. The McMansion is one design area that really irritates me. So many people are copying. It's such a comparative society. People are, drive their cars, choose their cars just for competing with other people. And their homes are designed the same way. I often was at odds with a lot of the McMansion oriented individuals because of the uh, idea or the approach to architecture that we should look at the spaces and what they do for you uh, when you are living there. They have it inside out. You know, it's it's almost like they think about the outside first and the inside's just sort of an afterthought. And then the outside is just seeing uh, how many different cliches and the dinner parties, kind of mash uh, up. I don't know how many dinner parties people have in their lifetime, but these people are are into it. And I think that in just day-to-day -day living, and you know this yourself, uh, Clark, the dinner party is once in a while or if ever, and it's just day-to-day -day life. And it's those things, you're, you get ill and you're in rooms and you're, you have to create or use your computers and you're in rooms and doors are shut. These are the spaces that really count to me. Well, you know what happened here? I think um, we're, we've been talking for one-third of the program already, and we probably didn't uh, cover anything that we had in our outline. We're going to take a break here and come back and, uh, you know, see if we can cram it all into two segments instead of three. <laughs> In old Ankaragua, it had better be 1963. Clark Yarrington speaking. In the next part of Alley Audio Vision, Ralph works both camps of the Anchorage Power Elite and watches his newly adopted city fail to deal with growth shock. Well, one thing I do want to give just a concept of Anchorage uh, because it starts burgeoning and growth everywhere. And I think one of the 
areas that Anchorage started expanding was in the eastern and south segments. At that time, Gamble Street was like a two-lane road, and I don't even think it was paved beyond, oh, 15th or Fireweed or something like that. And anyway, it headed out of town and joined the old Seward Highway, which was the only way out of town in those days. Out about 10, 11 miles uh, was Rabbit Creek Inn. I don't know if that is still there or not. It was a great place to go. Uh, had wonderful food, beautiful windows looking out over the inlet. And of course, rabbits were all over the front yard when you walk up to it. It, it hasn't been there since uh, the 80s sometime. It hasn't? No. Well, it was a wonderful place to go. I have been to Anchorage a number of times since uh, I left there, and I don't know what happened to the Edgewater Hotel, but it was right on the uh, right over the railroad tracks there, beyond Sunset Hills West, and maybe opposite Rabbit Creek. That used to be a place. Uh, uh, in fact, I even think John F. Kennedy, uh, when he was up there, uh, was there for some kind of event. Do you remember it? No, that's the first I've heard of it. Um, the name reminds me of um, in Seattle, there's a place down on the piers there called the Edgewater Inn. may not still be, be there either, but it was noted for, um, it was built on a dock out into uh, Elliott Bay, and people could um, fish out their room window. There's a Frank Zappa song where he talks about hooking a mud shark. <laughs> Tell me about, did it have kind of diamond shapes painted on it or part of the architecture of it, the edge of water in Seattle, because it could. The, the only thing I remember about it is there was sort of a tower element that had a neon sign on it with the um, the name of it, but it was kind of a blocky building. Oh. I don't remember too many details. It, it might have had something like that on the, on the elevations. I never went to the Edgewater in Anchorage, but I passed it many, many times and I lived down by it for a while. But the thing I remember, it had kind of diamond shaped something that went across the facade. And that's about the height of my <laughs> recollection of it, but it was a place people liked to go. That was pretty much the way Anchorage was at that time. It had that meandering Spinard Road from the airport and uh, the downtown had two high rises in it, a lot of wood buildings. And of course, there were a number of cob jobs that we've talked about earlier in this. It was uh, the split of the, we called it the elite. We got into it a little bit. Uh, there is this faction of the adventurist and it, and it was in 1958 when, uh, Lowell and Tay Thomas moved there. Uh, they joined the uh, adventure-oriented residence, and that really s somewhat stirred the power pot. And people were somewhat wondering whether they should be more clustered around the Thomases or the Atwoods. I remember people discussing that, which was strange, because I've never felt like I needed to be around anybody for my existence. But people do think that way, and it always was something surprised me when it would come up in my designing for people. And it still does. It's still, and not only in Anchorage, but in other places I've designed uh, people's personal home. The one faction, the empire builders and the people who had this great ancestral heritage was one group. And then the other were people who were kind of independent of that. And of course, uh, uh, Lowell Thomas Jr. had his own fame even before he got there. He had explored uh, the world with his father. And uh, they went to Tibet, by the way. Uh, I think it was in the late 40s that 
try to save Tibet from uh, the clutches of China, which was taking over the, all the little communities up in the Himalayas. And uh, it's just Thomas's always were interesting to, because of that, because there's kind of an excitement about ex exploring. And I remember being in the seventh grade or sixth, I, I read everything I could that Richard Halliburton wrote or Charles Lindbergh wrote. I always had my mind seeing those parts of the world. And I don't care about luxury hotels or being places where people like to gather. I just like the idea of exploring and seeing these exotic places. And maybe that's one thing that appealed to me about going to Alaska. Well, Lowell um, probably could uh, lure a bunch of people away from one of uh, Atwood's parties, you know, if one of his was happening on the same day. He probably had a lot better <laughs> stories. Oh, I can remember Evangeline Atwood went to visit Tate Thomas before Evangeline hired me to do her home. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting. Uh, you've been to the Thomas house, and Tay said the first thing that Evangeline said to her when she looked at her living room, she says, well, this thing's a postage stamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It just kind of amazed me. There was a client that uh, we had at Mike Men's office, and uh, I wasn't working on their project. Somebody else in the office was, but she said that uh, the client told her um, he happened to think this was really funny. You know, it's like humor only a lawyer would appreciate, I guess. But the um, he thought that the so-called uh, great room was too small, and he took to calling it the pretty good room. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> In fact, this gathering that I was with was in a great room like that, a new home that someone bought that's friends of Virginia's of mine. And it was such a fabulous, uh, the way it worked around everyone just moving from one place in there to the other in the kitchen and out to the California room, which is attached room and back that the wall, glass wall slides open to. I really enjoyed how that worked. It's just kind of a, I'm just getting used to that, but I remember those early days in Grangefield at that farm after I graduated from college of seeing that work then. And every time I'm in one, when I see it work with groups of people or a group of people, I really relish how that is, the design, aggregating all those functions in one area. I wonder how a state gets to have a room named after it. You know, you, there's a California room, there's a Florida <laughs> room that I've heard of before. If if there were an Alaska room, I wonder, it seems like it would have to be e either a log cabin, an Atco trailer, or a Quonset. It's got to have a moose mounted somewhere on the wall. Yeah, or, or I don't know, maybe just a big window where you could see a real one outside. <laughs> Well, I uh, always think about that comment that Mayer made uh, about uh, Hines buying up the east part of town. And what a silly thing, thing that was. And nothing was safe around that guy. But as Anchorage started expanding. Yeah, the so-called worthless land. <laughs> yes. And there were all these little pockets developing. Uh, you know, there was College Village that we talked about last time, uh, which was uh, around a lake. Lake Otis and uh, whatever street uh, is on the other side of it and uh, Northern Lights and 36th. Still a very interesting neighborhood. Lots of uh, cool houses in there. Well, I know we talked about this offline, but Harpel, who started Heart Radio and built a home that John Lautner designed, who's a Los Angeles architect and a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright's. It seemed like 
a lot of people like that would seek me out to talk to me when they'd come up and do work. And one of the people that I met was a guy by the name of John Fowler, who was representative of Lautner. And uh, he, his building, uh, well, a lot of Lautner's work starts with this round element. But the first thing I ever noticed about it looking, it's more to the west side of Lake Otis, um, well, I was really interested in pole structures and that whole round element, they started putting up uh, the equivalent of these poles around it. And it's a really interesting building. I don't know whatever happened to it or not. Uh, I've never heard of it since. After it was constructed, uh, it may have been torn down by the way they ripped buildings down up there. It's amazing. You know, the statehood and the jets really just changed Anchorage so quickly. And it's almost breathtaking when you look at what happened. Of course, one thing, the air terminal needed expanding and be able to accommodate jets uh, with uh, their jetaways. And uh, and Manley Mayer got that, and uh, I was involved with that through Manley Mayer. And of course, I was a flunky there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got to do title blocks and maybe print on their machine. And sometimes they'd let me design things. <laughs> it was uh, kind of a potpourri of chores that I got to do. But it was then when Edward Stone arrived in Anchorage. The Providence Hospital was building out southeast of town. The Alaska Methodist University, that building was just there when I arrived, and that was done by Manley and Mayer, too. Edward Stone, I was familiar with his work before he ever arrived there because of, uh, I think he did the Capitol building in India, and he was quite renowned, but everything looked alike to me. He had did the medical center at Stanford, and I was real familiar with that as well. He did two buildings there in Anchorage at Alaska Methodist University, it was called that then, which also had the same formulaic type of approach to architecture. Uh, big square things with uh, panels that were sculpted with hanging planters, and they all had kind of an Acropolis look to it to me. And I think you've seen those lately, haven't you? Or Yeah, that building is uh, in good shape still. And the, if I was, you know, they looked like they'd redone some of the concrete flat work that uh, goes in between the buildings and forms a little plaza in the, in the center and stuff. And it, it, you know, it really looked pretty good. It's like the whole campus has been um, mothballed now because of the um, virus. And so walking through there and it, it had a whole eerie film noir quality about it. Now yeah, walking past that building and um, it's, uh, I think the thing that I was most disappointed at is these hanging planters have no plants in them. I wonder if they still do anywhere else because they're all over his buildings everywhere he designed. When he went to Anchorage... Probably would have taken them out, but it was too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> True. But his idea of that whole area out there was to change the uh, geography there and just have these columns just surrounding the entire campus. That was his concept. And he had other concepts about Anchorage, which kind of fell on deaf ears by, uh, by the towners who really were more into cob jobs, I think, than looking at a grand scheme for Anchorage. Yeah, in some ways it's uh, really too bad because I think if uh, 
you talk about um, the period where Anchorage, um, if you look at an aerial photo of Anchorage, you can see, so Anchorage in the, when it was first developed in 1915 and for, you know, 10 or 15 years after that, everything was downtown. But the rest of it was developed into these, like, I think 20 acre a piece um, homestead lots. And they, the the borders between these 20-acre homesteads can s- still be clearly seen on an aerial photograph from today. And they are like where the major um, north, south, and east-west uh, streets are along the borders between the homesteads. It ended up like um, that development was like sort of slow and steady to the east and to the south. But it, it ended up being filled up with this very unremarkable stuff. You know, you talked about the so-called cob jobs. Really, we've got like a, a lot of surface parking and, um, it, you know, multi-lane ar- arterial roads and um, low-scale retail stuff, a lot of other things too. But um, n- nobody would have planned something like this in, in their right mind, you know, if they were starting from scratch. It's just sort of like unfolded in an ad hoc way. I, I mean, am I too cynical here? <laughs> no, I, I think that I think that's good. The thing that you know, look at today, uh, especially here in California, they want to get people out of their automobiles, and the way you can almost have some kind of schizophrenic uh, seizure or something by the way people talk about how town planning or city planning should be because now they want to cluster. And I think it's good because we've talked about living in the central business district and I love that. And I loved working just a block or two away. And I mean, that was a fabulous thing. But I've also commuted from where I live to Los Angeles and have had to wrestle the drivers and the near-death circumstances on the freeway and just madness and when you're having to plan leaving your office at 1 30 in the afternoon in order to get home by at least six I, I mean that's just crazy way to live and you can't really I, I mean if it wasn't for friends of ours who had a six-bedroom home whose all their kids had all left uh and we i just rented a bedroom and bathroom and stayed three nights a week but that's hard when you're married and trying to carry on life and uh, maybe going to los angeles is a bad thing but i had quite a bit of business up there and i had to take that under consideration but it's bad planning to live that way and anchorage here it doesn't need to be that way and here it is for a lot of people who live up in the hills and live work downtown i live 10 miles out of town and i had an office downtown and it seems to be the way the mind thinks but it isn't really a logical way to live yeah i think what um sort of saves it in the the end is that uh, it is a defined area, you know, it's surrounded by the mountains on one side and the water on the other side, and there's just yes. two ways to get out of town, so it can only get, ever get so bad. <laughs> and, there, you know, yes. there's still an opportunity to, like, uh, fix it in the future, but it's interesting, there still are people who uh, think that, uh, you know, running running freeways through the middle of it is part of the answer. I, I don't happen to think so. Well, I'm amazed when I've been up there at these highways that have International Airport Road and and Tudor and all these little cow trails that were up there, (laughs) our main thoroughfares. It just takes my breath away to to see that, to to experience it. Two-thirds of the the show is uh, in the rearview mirror now. So let's take a second break and uh, we'll come back and wrap it up. All right. (laughs) 
wrap up, Ralph Alley and I talk more about the buildings of Anchorage and the qualities that make a good architect. Jumping ahead in the timeline, Ralph recounts an exchange and unsolicited career advice leading to his departure from Manly and Mayer. And we conclude with tales of Ralph's registration examinations. With with all the development, uh, of course, it brought a lot of people who were wanting to be in the middle of all of that. Uh, East Anchorage opening up, and of course, Manly Mayer, with the, the kind of firm they had, we got the East Anchorage High School. And with the success of West Anchorage High School, uh, that was on the boards as well with uh, Alaska Methodist University and the Air Terminal. And so it was quite a lot, a, a diverse experience as far as a guy like me being a drafter in the office. Uh, it got involved with a lot of different kinds of buildings, which actually came in very handy as I matured in architecture. But with the people who came to town, I can remember there was this guy named Dan from Texas, and when he uh, walked in the office, uh, he just kind of announced himself. I guess that's the way he was. Uh, you know, he said, I'm a civil engineer, and I'm from uh, Trick Diamond Hayes. I'm y'all's AMU uh, rep for the uh, the buildings out there, and he says, I'm an A&M Aggie, and I'll never forget that guy. But the thing that made him formidable was that he was had that golden, sun-touched skin that us guys who drafted under fluorescent lights will never achieve. And he had this beautiful mouthful of white teeth against that tan on his face and shiny face and golden locks on top of his head. And <laughs> man, the, the gals out front were almost going crazy every time he walked into the office. But somehow he kind of saw me in there and he came in and uh, would always talk to me and kind of became a friend. He'd ask me, uh, uh, Yvonne was in, and he asked me who she was, and I told her, told him her his her name, and that she was from Saskatchewan. And he looked at me like he'd never heard of that, and I said, "That's in Canada, Dan." <laughs> he was, <laughs> he, I guess, he was truly a Texan, but he was really eager uh, to get involved with all the development going on. And at times he was in the office, he'd always get to me, and he says, "Let's go look around at lots." He said, "Let's find some." places to put apartments and you can design them he said oh we'll get a construction company together and build them and he was like that and I never knew anyone like that but he became kind of a friend and by our riding around looking for lots and we probably should have done all of that we probably would have been extremely wealthy but uh, you know as life goes on my life it was just like being overtaken with a tidal wave I lost track of people and a lot of things because all I did was play ping pong with just getting the next crisis over with and you know after several years many years you wake up and say where did those people go whatever happened to them it, that's kind of how my life went but Anchorage was like that it was the development was intent there were so many things happening uh, there was all these oil lease the frenzy over getting your oil lease was huge down on the Kenai Peninsula there was a sterling gas fields and out of the inlet there was a middle ground shoals it just made the town with the jets and the new people coming in just growing before your very eyes that was kind of anchorage from statehood uh, 
and this was only 1963. So in those few years uh, from 59 to 63, the town was multiplying, uh, duplicating itself many places, many areas, and uh, kind of growing together in these little communities on the outskirts, like Eagle River was way out, and people used to just drive out the highway to have breakfast or something out there. There's a restaurant, and they had little cabins. Some people had, they would go out for weekends, but now Eagle River, I can't even find it when you drive out towards uh, uh, Eklutna. I didn't come here to live with my family until 72, so a lot of that had already happened. It was, uh, you know, you had had a sense of it that there'd been a rapid change, and it, it's got all kinds of implications. Like even today, uh, the housing stock that you're dealing with is uh, all uh, pretty old, you know. <laughs> you got tons of houses that I'm working on all the time that were built in the 60s. Actually, the 60s is a better era. You know, you're trying to work on one from the 50s or before, it's uh, often not in very good shape, not a very good uh, prospect for, you know, there'll be a lot of deficiencies to... Those houses, and especially trying to get permits on them, you know, you really have to rebuild the houses in order to to make them viable as far as uh, the permitting offices uh, acknowledge that people can live within them. And I remember some of those houses back then, and they didn't last. Some of them had just fallen apart. I've been by some of the old neighborhoods, and but I can remember living in a house that was just crummy, built back in early 50s, late 40s, and it just had everything that you dislike about cheap hotel motels or something. <laughs> that was kind of the mentality that went into planning it. It just is something that I think that today we really watch out for, not to fall into those crummy little appointments that you put into spaces. And, and the volumes were very small, low ceilings, uh, four walls, no windows, uh, maybe the windows just for fresh air, but they didn't look out to anything that was uh, in the in some of those neighborhoods are just really very close. And you can find a lot of those in Spinard, by the way. I think they're still existing. Yeah, little tiny boxy houses often with flat roofs. And you wonder why they're there. They don't even look like Alaska, but they're there because they're cheap to build. And that is something I heard over and over and over again in that office. This idea of turning out architecture over a weekend startled me. And I can even remember, I used to have discussions and I was people looked at me as an anomaly. No, you gotta get, you gotta be faster, Ralph. You gotta turn these things out. You'll never have any money. And uh, that's kind of how people were approaching art. And of course, they all had registration too. <laughs> and that kind of bothered me. I, those people with that mentality, and they were have license to uh, do anything they wanted in Alaska. None of them had a respect for the land or anything except their damn pocketbooks. And that was how it was. Yeah, I remember Chuck Blomfield telling me something like that, where he would uh, draw somebody a set of house plans over the weekend. There'd be eight sheets of drawings and um, pretty standard, like a uh, ranch or split level house. You know, he'd start on a on Friday night and um, finish it by the end of Sunday and, and, and deliver it to him and charge him like $400. Oh, yes. <laughs> I knew Charles uh, Blomfield. Of course, I lived with he and Adelaide for a while in an apartment in their house. And of course, I loved them. They were so nice to me and their kids were wonderful. But Chuck's philosophy was the antithesis of mine. And he thought I was nuts. 
I think. He never said that. He was always cordial. But a lot of people looked at me as an anomaly to ever making it in Alaska. And I can remember when I finally went to Bill Manley, and of course, he always was princely toward me. And uh, he had no idea what I was doing, what I had done when I had quit there. And I'd worked there for five and a half years. And I just kind of dutifully went to work and just did what they asked me. And, and, uh, and of course, they asked me to do quite a broad spectrum of things, which I did contribute where I could. And they knew that I could, could was an artist and I could draw. And they always called upon me to do things, uh, buildings uh, that they wanted to sell and things. I did that kind of thing. But I can remember the attitude always was you had to be fast. You had to be quick. You had to turn work out, 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 out. And that was the mainstay of how you were regarded as an architect, if you were a good drafter, you just could draft up real quick, get it out on the off the boards, out in the field, out of the ground uh, before break, before freeze up, and all that stuff was the way Alaska was geared. And I kind of stopped and thought about these things, and I can remember when I went to Bill Matley and I said, "Bill, I'm going to quit working here." And he says, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I, I'm really not sure. I, he said, do you have a job with anyone? I said, no, I don't have a job with anybody. And he says, well, my advice to you, Ralph, is the way you are is to get out of architecture. <laughs> After five and a half years, that's, that was his advice to me. <laughs> I couldn't believe he said that, but that's what he said. And I thought, God. <laughs> what are you saying? And anyway, I just kind of, once he said that, I went and got my things and left. And that was the end. Seems like uh, it's rather inauspicious. <laughs> yes, it was. But I had more work than I could handle at the time, so I didn't take it too seriously. That was after the earthquake and uh, when, when I did that. But it, it, it's funny, that attitude toward what people there thought you should be like to thrive in architecture. It was totally different. And, of course, the licensing. I've been told something like that, <laughs> too, at various times, where somebody will say, like, uh, you know, this this uh, field isn't for you. You really shouldn't be trying to do this. And it doesn't really have the desired effect on me, really. No. It just makes me more determined than ever, like, whatever, I'm going to outlast you, you know. <laughs> Well, that's probably one reason we have an affinity for each other, Clark. I, I don't know you personally, but uh, just going through these talks that we have over the podcast, I, I'm learning about you and the things we discuss. You're very much like I am, and uh, that's quite nice, I think, <laughs> as far as our approach and thinking in architecture yeah i don't know it's um i think i'm one part gifted and one part reactionary you know or, or a pariah or something <laughs> seem to be able to say the right thing sometimes or uh schmooze people very much somebody must have told you that because I, I get by just you always say the right things clark you have a very good way of approaching subjects and i am always amazed by it in these conversations we have when we get into the attitude toward design. I can remember my struggle in trying to um, get registered. And I didn't get registered till 1968. It's somewhat 
interesting. Uh, remember Kyle, who worked at Manly Mayor, went over to Crittenden. So I bumped into him one day on the street, and he was a guy from Australia, and we were friends then uh, at the beginning. And he saw me on the street corner. He said, "Call me over," and he says, "How have you been?" Blah blah blah. As people talk, I said, "Are you getting ready to?" Um, take the state boards because he had just graduated from a college down in a foreign country where he was from. And they give a registration when you graduate. It's almost like a certificate to practice architecture. And he said, no, I don't have to do that no more. And I said, what? He says, I got reciprocity from, from Australia. I said, what? You do? I said, well, gosh, you how could you do that? Uh, have you ever, in that day, they didn't call them intern. Have you apprenticed in the U.S. or anything? Do you know anything about practicing in the United States? Or do you know anything about practicing in Alaska? I said, all of that's in state board exams. You've got to take that. How, how will you do it? He said, well, I'll, I'll learn it by doing it. <laughs> And here, uh, Clark, I had been, I passed everything by then except design and got turned down every time I took the test, couldn't pass it. And that really irritated me because this guy went on, got his own firm, was doing all kinds of stuff. And the equivalent, he was the same as I was. I mean, as far as registration was concerned. And I watched this registration thing closely because I had quite a struggle because everything I did, people would say, well, you're not a real architect, blah, blah, going on and on, uh, putting me down. And there was a gal named Bev Isenson, I think that was her name from the Anchorage Daily News, who loved my architecture. And she wrote up everything that I did. She'd follow me around. And I said, Beverly, you can do that. You can take pictures. You can put them in the paper. I am not going to allow you to put my name with it. Well, why not? I said, just don't use my name. I'm having a difficult time getting registered and I just can't do it. She said, well, people will always wonder who's doing it. And I said, well, I don't care. Don't use my name. <laughs> I don't know whatever happened to Beverly, but I, I think I totally mixed her up. <laughs> what news people do. That's so counterintuitive because it sounds like, you know, you had had some really good projects out there and they were worth publicizing and getting people to know about them and having your name associated with they them. They got publicized, Clark, regardless. Just because of this registration debacle, you know, you had to like um, have some self-censorship and restraint deployed. Well, the registration examinations, the state boards, were given every, I believe, two years on even years, like 60, 62, 64, 66. I passed everything but design, but kept flunking design. And they were made up by the practitioners and graded by your future competitors. I did complain about the facilities at, uh, uh, at one time. They gave it out at Alaska Methodist University. And I mean, it was just impossible testing. Get into this in my book, but the engineer and the architects were put on, engineers were on one side of the room, we were put in another, and they had these rotary calculating machines, all of them, and we had nothing but pencils and paper. <laughs> and so as soon as they gave the ghost sign, this roar would go on for eight hours, and we were sitting there filling out multiple choice with a pencil. I don't know if you've ever been around a, a rotary calculating machine, but one is annoying, but say 50 of them are really annoying, then we oh have... Oh, my God. Oh, I was just uh, 
trying to imagine that. It sounds horrible. <laughs> Bring your earplugs or something. I don't know. I, I know. And I complained about that. And, and then when we had to do the design, which is a 12-hour straight design test you can bring a lunch you can't talk to anybody and they put it in the library we had to bend over 90 degrees on 30 inch high tables and draft this thing uh, whatever you designed and i just said that isn't that isn't conducive to people passing design exams and i was not particularly popular with the state board at that time well it sounds that way and um it, you know the you were um stroking my ego a little while ago so i'll i'll say to you now that i think you're really the best uh designer in the history of alaska bar none Ooh. and the fact that uh you had to um re- retake the the design portion of the exam three or four times you know i i find that just incredible it's like <laughs> It just makes you think that there's the fix was in somehow. Well, there was a second guy from England who also got reciprocity from his college in England. He had never practiced in the United States or, or apprenticed in Alaska. And that really was the coup de grace for me. And I watched architects who were established kind of, I, I can't even say how this, the right word for it, but there were many, many talented people that I knew who came up there to, to get into architecture that were later discouraged and they left. And they were magnificent. Some of them worked for me. I saw them leave because they thought they could never win up there. It was that heavy. Mm-hmm. And when the nation, when the state boards were nationalized and every state took the same test and they were not graded by the local architects, regional architects, they were graded nationally. I It was 1967, a half year, because the state boards were scheduled for 68. I asked the state board in Alaska if I could be examined for design in Idaho for them and they concurred. So I flew down to Boise and took the design and I passed. I suspect that uh, had you um, continued to just um, take that in Anchorage, it may have been uh, just the the same result, huh? It could have been. Well, I was scheduled for 68. I took it every time they gave it and then 70 and then 72. I I could just see that happening. And by that time... uh, Clark, I had eight people working for me by the time I passed. Four months after I took it in December in 67 that I uh, received uh, the word and the state of Alaska granted me registration. The AIA pumped me up to all these officer <laughs> chairs. <laughs> and, you know, at the end, I kind of ended up being asked to be the state president of the AIA, which I always thought was, <laughs> I mean, you get, you get whiplash in this life. Good story. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, um, you know, despite the fact that we only talked about a fraction of uh, what we intended to in, in, in this uh, episode, we're over time now, oh. so we're going to have to uh, cut this one off. Well, it was wonderful talking to you again, Clark. Thank you.
Ralph's website shows some of his work. Navigate to our techdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph's working on a book about his career in Alaska. This has been Alley Audio Vision, Episode 7, recorded May 28, 2020. More episodes in the near term. So long, dear friends.